Because the information discussed and provided in the accompanying podcast is prepared for a general audience without investigation into the facts of each particular case, it is not legal advice. Tammy Gaw does not have a lawyer-client relationship with any listeners. The thoughts and commentary about the law contained on this podcast is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation or provision of legal advice. Back in February 2019, there was an article released by the Washington Post that states, as the result of Jordan McNair's death, the state of Maryland has proposed a bill that would give athletes the right to unionize and collectively bargain over issues related to health and safety, as well as compensation. This is a relevant conversation from our previous bonus episode on the Maryland case, but is also the area of expertise for Tammy in her practice of law. We thought it would be advantageous to discuss the details of unionization and what it means for players to form a union and how it may impact your work with them. Tammy has been gracious enough to share some serious insight and wisdom on this topic, and I think we're all going to be more well-informed and able to speak to the subject more intelligently as a result. It was Representative Brooke E. Learman of Maryland who proposed this legislation after, quote, a growing need for independent advocates who can work on behalf of athletes. She is further quoted as saying, there's an inherently unequal playing field between student athletes and the university they go to. According to businessdictionary.com, unionization is defined as the process of organizing the employees of a company into a labor union, which will act as an intermediary between the employees and company management. In most cases, it requires a majority vote of the employees to authorize a union. If a union is established, the company is said to be unionized. I want to give some history about unionizing and a bit of how it came to be. In 1935, Congress enacted the National Labor Relations Act to protect the rights of employees and employers to encourage collective bargaining, and to curtail certain private sector labor and management practices, which can harm the general welfare of workers and businesses. However, most student-athletes of public universities would not be subject to this act, as they would be considered public workers and the jurisdiction would fall under the state labor laws. The American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organization, otherwise known as the AFL-CIO, is a voluntary federation that represents 12.5 million working men and women. According to the AFL-CIO, employees who are covered under the National Labor Relations Act have the right to join together to improve their wages and working conditions with or without a union. Tammy, one of the glaring things I see here is that it requires members to be employees. This assumes that an athlete would need to become an employee prior to being able to unionize, right? That is the basic premise of unionization as we know it in this country. Um, But let's talk a little more about unions in general. 
So unionizing has several benefits. It brings together individuals whose voices are louder together than they are apart, Mm -hmm. but it can also provide protection from retaliation. So states with higher levels of union membership tend to have higher median incomes and standard of living. Mm. Um, It's been asserted by many scholars and also the International Monetary Fund that rising income inequality in the United States is directly attributable to the decline of the labor movement and union membership. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. There have been several aggressive moves over the past few decades by one party, generally, to cripple unions. (laughs) And it still plays out, even for those of us not in union jobs, um, in things like elimination of employer-sponsored health insurance plans, um, retirement pensions, things that older generations who had the benefit of unions took for granted that we, as younger generations, don't. don't have the benefit of. Right. I was um, just going to say that, that it seems, you know, unions were something that were really prevalent with my grandparents and even, uh-huh. you know, into my parents' age. Um, but I I personally currently do not know anybody that works in a union, which uh, is probably a statement that maybe most people can say, which would not have been the case several decades ago, which is kind of what you're alluding to here. Yeah, that is, it is in... It is in the best interest of the employer whose chief concern is to keep money in their own pockets, Mm. to not have unionizing, to not have unions within their um, parties or in their companies because they tend to advocate for pesky things like living wages and, (laughs) you know, time off. Um, There is, I mean, at the time of recording, if you just look at some of the stuff that's going on in newspapers mm-hmm. around the country, there's a real big movement around uh, reporters and journalists right. trying to unionize within some of these hedge fund owned newspaper conglomerates yeah. now. And the the pushback that they are getting from the management side is really quite extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. My husband's a broadcast journalism major and he's been talking to me about kind of everything that's going on and understanding the effects on freedom of speech and mm-hmm. really, you know, how it's traditionally been the journalist's responsibility to kind of manage what is said out loud. And, you know, they have a level of integrity that they're supposed to be held to. So certainly when there's other yeah. voices and other influences that are in there, that starts to get muddied. <laughs> well, there was, um, so it, it, it got a lot of attention, um, mm-hmm. but there were these seat placards um, that Delta put out hmm. that said things like, you know, I mean, and I'm not being facetious, but it said, you know, $700 is a lot of money to pay for union dues that could buy you a new Xbox or PS4, what? something like that. I mean, actually printed stuff. Oh, yeah, goodness. I'll send them to you. It is bananas. Wow. $700 could pay for you and your family to go see some baseball games. I mean, it was And it bananas. also protects me to allow me to have a livable wage and a retirement. And, yeah. Well, wow, they, they got a fair amount. I mean, I for that, first yeah. found out about it from a friend of mine in the UK. Oh, who goodness. had sent it yeah and who had sent it to me but that also had said something about it on Twitter uh, to the extent of you know what else helps me afford uh, to go to baseball games 
uh, livable wage. Exactly. You know, that, <laughs> my $700 was, I mean, is well spent protecting that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or they said, you know, my $700 goes to pay my health insurance premiums for one month. What are you going to do about that? Touche. So, yeah, Touche. <laughs> it, it, uh, it showed a, it showed a pretty glaring failure to read the room on behalf totally, of whoever, totally. whoever greenlit that ad campaign. But, Interesting. Um, yeah, it was, it was a hot mess and it, it, it was funny in as much as the alternative is crying because you're right. like, I cannot believe we're looking at this. Yes. Um, yeah. So let's take that understanding of, of unions mm-hmm. um, and take this into uh, collective bargaining agreements okay. or CBAs. So collective bargaining is a process of negotiating between employers and a group of employees aimed at getting agreements that regulate working salaries, working conditions, benefits, other aspects of worker compensation and rights, okay. um, that sort of thing. Okay. So the interest of the employees are commonly presented by a, you know, representatives of a trade union mm-hmm. to which the employees belong. Okay. And then the collective agreements reached by these negotiations usually set out you know, the wage scales and the working hours and training, mm-hmm. health and safety, overtime, grievance mechanisms, um, other things like that. So, so yeah, so yeah. it kind of sounds like the unions are like a mouthpiece or like, you know, they're the, like you said, advocates or, you know, because maybe these uh-huh. employees and understandably, they wouldn't necessarily know how to articulate this in a way that might be understood or even respected by their employers. So it's almost like the union is the representation on their behalf to the, so it, it, I mean, it is the collective bargaining, but it also is kind of representation. Yeah. And, okay. and I mean, if for no other reason, then you can't get a hundred thousand people in one room. Well, yeah, touche. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that it, it, you know, it, it sounds, it sounds kind of simple, but that is, you know, there are machinations that go on within a union. I mean, they have to get permission. They have to get, you know, the members have mm-hmm. to vote. They can go and negotiate. I mean, I have friends who are union lawyers, uh, not even in sports, and they mm-hmm. can negotiate agreements with management, come back, and the employees go, you know, the union members go, nope, and they can, cool, they can actually. vote it down. Yeah, I yeah, like it's, yeah, it is, uh, it's, it's kind of extraordinary mm-hmm. to watch it happen, although when you're the labor lawyer and you've sat there with management trying to hammer something oh, out certainly, for yeah. <laughs> two weeks, and then you go back and your, and your members go, nope, not going to do it. Yeah. You, you might need a drink, but... Uh, but that's that's what that is supposed to be mm-hmm. supposed to be there for, um, you know, and that that can be really powerful mm-hmm. because the workers, you know, employees have leverage as part of a larger group. Yeah. And so when you talk about the AFL-CIO, the steel workers who will come up um, a little bit later when we talk about um, the Northwestern mm-hmm. uh, football players that mm-hmm. tried to unionize, yeah. um, they were backed by the by the steel workers, okay. which seems weird. But the steel workers represent a lot of people that don't actually a lot of uh, trades that are not actually mm. have nothing to do with steel. Yeah, it's really it's really cool. quite interesting yeah. when you yeah when you look at some of that stuff. Um, so you know. A, at the time of recording, we're a little bit we're a little bit beyond it, but it still hasn't been resolved, um, and it's not applicable to sports. But I encourage people that are interested to look at the recent action taken by the Writers Guild of America against agents and agencies that were making side deals that brought the agents huge money from mm. those deals, but none of them went to the writers that did, you know, the actual work, <laughs> wow. the, the actual writing. Yeah, yeah it's 
it's some pretty if anybody's interested look up david uh david simon the guy who wrote uh homicide life on the street he wrote the wire he did an open letter that breaks down very clearly some of the super shady stuff that was going on Ooh, i'm gonna have to look and, that up yeah it, it's i mean we could go down a whole rabbit hole about it but essentially the there were agents that were representing not only the writers but they were representing the producers and then they were they were I'm trying to think of how to describe it easily like they, they were would basically make more had the their hands in both pots yeah yeah, no, yeah they'd have their hands in both pots mm-hmm. because they said well we're going to tie the writers to a certain amount of things but they weren't telling the writers what they were tying to interesting yeah yeah i mean there are it, it, there are lawyers that were involved in this that should probably be disbarred because when you talk about the representation Yikes. of your client being foremost yeah your foremost obligation yeah that's so if anybody's interested in it, hit me up if you want to know exactly where it is, but just look up David Simon. He, cool. he uh, was very, very clear. So the Writers Guild of America, that. they're a union? Yep. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the Writers Guild. When you see the SAG Awards, yeah, any of the guilds. That show, mm-hmm. that's the Screen Actors Guild. Yep. Um, and they merged with uh, AFTRA, mm-hmm. which is the Associated Federation of television recording artists mm-hmm. maybe um, but they merged right. the two unions together so now it's referred to as sag after but there's yep. the director's guild there's the producer's guild yeah um side note if anybody ever watches the show outlander um outlander's filmed in scotland mm. uh it's filmed in edinburgh and one of their series takes place ostensibly in north carolina one of the seasons <laughs> and that is filmed in edinburgh because Outlander is not a union shop, and so none of the SAG members can act in that. And so whenever you see some of the they, – they use some First Nation indigenous actors mm-hmm. to act as the American Indians, mm-hmm. and they flew them, they're, but they're from Canada oh, because okay. SAG – it's not a SAG shop. It's not a union shop, that production. So it, it, it works its way into a lot of different things that you – that you see. Yeah, um, I was gonna say, I, I ran into a lot of that when I worked on Biggest Loser is half the people yeah. were union, half of them weren't. So the entire production had to run on union hours. You know, we had to yep. have 12 hours. Anything over that was overtime. We had mandatory one hour lunches. There were certain things that, you know, the grip guys couldn't carry stage equipment. This, you know, the, the stagers couldn't do the grips. And yeah, it's, yep. it's really interesting when you start looking at the delineation, but it really only, it all comes down to protecting them is if uh-huh. a grip guy is being asked to carry a prop off stage and could injure themselves, well, then he can no longer do grip. So, it, uh-huh. I mean, I understand why it's there, but yeah. Okay. Anyways. Yeah. Well, it's, it's everywhere. <laughs> Unionization is everywhere. Sure. And in my opinion, should be in more places. But mm-hmm. That. Mm-hmm. That's beside the point. Yeah. Or maybe it's the exact point. Yeah. Um, so so let's let's try and take that into sports now. Sure. So we got we just were talking about the collective bargaining mm-hmm. agreement. And so in professional sports, those lay out the rights and recourses for both management and labor. Right. So these are legally enforceable agreements Mm -hmm. governing the relation between the the relationships and the relations between the athletes and the team or the league. Mm -hmm. So interestingly, at least interesting to me, so it's going to be interesting to everybody for the next couple of minutes. I'm concerned. CBAs in sports, how I'm going to do it. Um, So CBAs in sports is largely a U.S. model. Oh. They they do have some uses in, in other countries. Okay. Um, for instance, in the United Kingdom, uh, there's the Professional Football Compensation Committee 
which is incorporated under the rules of the FA, the, the English mm-hmm. FA and the Premier League. Mm-hmm. And that forms part of the collective bargaining agreement with the Professional Football Association. Right. Footballers Association which is soccer so for anybody who's... Yes, yeah. sorry. <laughs> which is soccer. Footballers with the soccer. Yes. Um, so, you know, that may surprise some people if, you know, especially if you're at all familiar with my, my opinions and perspectives on the failures of many aspects of the U.S. system. <laughs> but but if you think about why CBAs are mostly a, a U.S.-centric mm-hmm. uh, focus thing, is you know, one of the most contentious aspects of CBAs in sports is always the area of health care, particularly oh. in retirement. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that. I would have assumed it would have been salary, but okay, yeah, that actually makes sense. Healthcare, especially yeah. in retirement, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because of damage to your body while you're Certainly. while you're being played, right? And unions have been fighting that battle, you know, over the years. Okay, but actually, if the U.S. didn't have such a ludicrously inadequate privatized healthcare system, right. <laughs> wouldn't have to fight for that coverage. Exactly. Um, you know, in the U.K., they have access to the NHS. So you wouldn't have to argue for health coverage because the idea that somehow you didn't have health coverage is anathema. It's just it, right. I don't understand. Right. Um, you wouldn't have to worry about being refused treatment because of a pre-existing condition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I encourage you to go back and listen to our, our episodes on pre-existing conditions yeah. um, as as that exists as a essentially a billing. It's a billing element. Right. Um and they don't have to worry about being able to afford private insurance after yeah. they're done playing. Yeah. You know, so that that kind of that kind of thing. So healthcare is a big thing. It totally that makes sense. is negotiated for by the union. Yeah. So one of the other things that will get bargained for in CBAs are drug testing regimens, for instance. Mm. So that has something to do with the athletic training. Absolutely. How many times you can be tested, what the punishments are for positive tests, what tests are, you know, this bizarre, arbitrary delineation between what are recreational drugs and mm-hmm. what are not recreational mm-hmm. drugs. Um, you know, those kind of things, those kind of things are, are discussed in CBAs. Disciplinary procedures are also bargained for so right. that agreed upon punishments are meted out as fairly as possible and aren't buried on the whim of the commissioner or the league or right. other arbiter or any other, you know, the, the current environment or the pulse of things going on or yeah. 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 The, the, the exactly. topic that comes to mind um, and there is no CBA for this, but maybe is the point of what you're saying is uh, this just past national football championship where the two of the Clemson players tested positive for a banned substance. And um, they said that it was something that their nutritionist had given them. But Uh this is, you know, this is the point where it's like, now the national championship is on the line and everyone's going back and forth. And these are high draft picks. And, you know, we shouldn't even have to worry about all that stuff. Everything should be delineated up front, which in that case it was, they did end up not playing in the national championship, which didn't change the outcome for Clemson. (laughs) But, um, you know, to your point, you know, those are the things that would have been, you know, collectively bargained up front so that maybe the players had more of a say in it as opposed to just the NCAA deciding what that looks like for them. Yeah, or what individual conferences can say or what a school decides. Mm. And within a school, how the football team reacts differently than the baseball team. Oh, touche. I mean, it's. Yeah, it's you know it's it's throwing spaghetti at a wall and see and seeing, seeing what, what sticks. sticks sometimes totally. So um, yeah, I mean obviously those things work you know work better 
were better than others. In several leagues, the punishment for performance-enhancing drugs and marijuana is multiple times longer than that for domestic (laughs) violence. Wink, wink, NFL. (laughs) Yeah, well, and Major League Baseball isn't, you know, they don't have any, the NHL certainly doesn't have a leg to stand on in that. Mm. Um, So, you know, that's, that's something that the the punishment for domestic violence is always is always a big topic of discussion because every situation is so different. You know, you're not just, uh, you know, a, a test doesn't show up. Sure. And give you an arbitrary or like a, a delineated number that you can say, right. well, this violates this, you know, bright line. Yeah, there's two people regulation. at minimum involved, not just pissing in a cup. Yeah. <laughs> well, and uh, there's. Uh, we could we could go for we could go for hours on it, but the idea that somehow if there isn't video available that, that mm. something did or did not mm-hmm. happen. I mean, it's mm-hmm. you know, it's, there's it's it's a problem, and it's a problem for both the unions and the and the leagues, right? Uh, to, because they do want to, as, as sarcastic and, and cynical as I have, have become about their approach to it, um, you know, they want to get it right. Sure, they you know they don't they don't want to be either criminalizing a player who didn't do it or, or letting let a player off the go who right, did. Right. Yeah. It's not that, you know, they, they want to get it right, but sure. it's, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. Um, another thing that you see negotiated for things like uh, revenue splits. So sure. that differs from league to league. The NBA has a different uh, revenue split model than the NFL does that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Now, side note for people, if you like professional sports, um, Keep an eye out because the CBAs of uh, just about every major professional sport in the U.S. are set to expire in the next four years. Oh, yeah, what are the those? NFL, Do you know? Well, yeah. The NFL expires in 2020. The WNBA expires this year, and they've already exercised their opt-out, I believe. The NHL, the NHL expires after the 2021-22 season, okay. but they have an ability to opt out this year. Mm. Major League Soccer expires in January of 2020, and I think the NBA has an opt-out option after 2022-23 yep. season. Yep. And the you know the NFL Players Association has already told their players to plan to not work for a year. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember this must have been, I don't know how long these uh, agreements go for, but I remember, I guess, four or five years ago when they held out and yeah. The NFL wasn't happening because they, and yeah. same with NHL. I, I actually think I could maybe, maybe anything outside of the NBA, I can remember there's been holdouts at some point regarding the collective uh-huh. bargaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Either, either a lockout or a, um, or a strike. Right. Um, then the name differing based on who is not, who, who is the one taking me? Yeah, sure. Who is the aggressor in the situation as of to whether course. or not it's a strike or a, mm-hmm. or a lockout? Um, but the thing that you see in the NFL, um, guaranteed contracts are a really big mm-hmm. uh, sticking point. Mm-hmm. And health care coverage, because right now, I believe the NFL, I, I believe that it is negotiated they have five years of health insurance post-retirement. And so if you look at all the things coming up with the head injuries and all yeah. of these different things, those are coming up five years past retirement. Five years past retirement for a lot of those guys, they're 28. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're not even in your 30s <laughs> for most of them. Yeah. 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 You're, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not in your 50s when that five years kicks in. So right. uh, keep, keep an eye on that. But the, yeah, the NFL Players Association has already very clearly said that their guys should start saving their money because they're, there's going to be. There's going to be some problems with that. Cool. 
kind of looking forward so to seeing that. that. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyways, um, <laughs> well, I work right down the I work right down the street from the from the NFLPA, so I I stumble across some of their folks uh, mm. from time to time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm a. Uh, I'm very much on their on their side because they they should be. I'm here for them fighting for the guaranteed, yeah, the guaranteed contracts and the and the better health care. Which would also be guys. better for the athletic trainers, knowing that yes, it would. You be. know, I'm not the last stop of health care that this uh-huh. guy might ever see, or it, it it lessens the burden of what they have to do for these guys, knowing that they're going to be released or not coming back. It's, it, yeah, I think it, it it's it's a win win for everybody. I think so. Unless you're one of those that doesn't like a couple of coins coming out of your pocket, billionaire owners. <laughs> Turn out your pockets. Right. So so let's take that with the billionaire owners idea. Mm-hmm. Now let's take that to college sport. Mm-hmm. So everything that we have talked about in all of the time, you know, this entire podcast has been what college athletes have no say in. Right. The number of practices, not consulted. Medical guidelines, rights around them, not given a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Economic rights, nope. Rights to push back if they're steered towards majors they don't like, uh, not a chance. Right yeah. to transfer if the coach that recruited them and made promises to them in high school packs up and moves in search of a bigger fa- paycheck, nope, not at all. Frequently not, and even then, the releases come with lots of artificially contrived restrictions. Wow, um, yeah. I didn't even think about all this. Yep. Yeah, there have been several athletes in the past few months that have been denied requests to transfer schools, including one that wanted to be closer to his very ill mother. Mm. And they said, nope, because it came within, like within a hundred mile radius rule of how close he was allowed to be to the school that he'd transferred from. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. Amateurism, right? A <laughs> hundred miles, that's a lot, especially in I'm more rural sure it's communities. mile radius. Yeah, Jeez. yeah. Well, you get, I mean, in Virginia... Well, yeah, you yeah, could hit five miles, states. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, it's it's bananas. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if you get protection for whistleblowing, protection against abuse, mm. rights to guaranteed scholarships, nope, 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 and nope. Yeah. Mm. So all of these things that we talked about that could be collectively bargained for, college athletes have no say in. Right. That's crazy. And um, yeah. so going back to the to the question about whether they're employees or not which is what kind of leads us back to this idea of whether they can unionize i remember um or i saw that lawmakers in ohio and michigan had passed bills in 2014 stating that university athletes were not employees so kind of going back to this idea that maybe certain a certain political party or certain entities have a greater interest in ensuring that these individuals being student athletes never have access to, you know, labor unions or collective bargaining. The fact that Ohio and Michigan now have laws basically that state that they're not employees and therefore could never unionize. Well, it's, I mean, you, you are, you are correct that, you know, one political party has a history of working a lot harder than the other mm-hmm. to destroy unions in deference for management making more money at the expense of the workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at the leadership of in Michigan and Ohio at that at that time, the approach of trying to legislate the rights of unpaid labor away makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, you know, the NCAA and organizations like Lead One, which is a 
they they don't like to be called lobbyists, but they're they're, <laughs> they're, they're lobbyists. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's it's essentially a trade organization that's represented by, uh, or it, it it its members are Division One athletic directors and mm-hmm. administrators. Hmm. Actually, it may not even just be Division One, um, but the the NCAA and Lead One are very supportive of any kind of legislation like that because then why wouldn't they? Right. The NCAA has spent a metric shed load of money on lawyers defending the idea that college athletes are not employees. Hmm. Um, they spent $25 million on outside legal fees in fiscal year 2015 alone. $25 million? On outside legal fees. They have lawyers inside. Wow. Some of them are very nice people. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so that's outside. There was, um, uh, in May... There was a report that came out that showed that they have spent 165 million U.S. dollars in legal fees just over the past five years. 165 million dollars. Wow. Yes, that's how important they're it doing is well for themselves, for huh? Them. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, Scrooge McDuck coin that they're backstroking through yeah. is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but you know, you don't spend 165 million dollars on something that you don't find important. They are very sure. committed to the idea that college athletes are not employees. Right. Very committed to that idea. Um, In the O'Bannon case that we've talked about, um, that is the, as far as some very whiny uh, bro dudes on Twitter like to say, the reason they don't have their NCAA video games anymore. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I can't, I can't even be bothered to act as if that's a a legitimate gripe. Yeah. Um, Because, EA Sports wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't produce it because they got named in the lawsuit. Mm -hmm. But the NCAA had to pay the plaintiff's fees and costs in that Mm -hmm. case to the tune of almost $45 million in that one case alone. Wow. Yeah. And then you've got, you know, the Plotts case against concussions, Mm -hmm. about the concussions and CTEs, uh, several antitrust cases. Uh, The... uh, I'm thinking that I saw in the Alston case that was recently decided... Uh, that the uh, the Alston folks are looking for forty six mil wow. in in legal fees. Yeah. I, I could be wrong about that. Yeah, but so I don't we're not think talking about settlements. We're talking about legal fees. The cost of lawyers. Please reference how many times I have said defending a lawsuit is expensive. Yeah, and realize <laughs> that these are actual <laughs> real U.S. dollars. Right, right. That, that took to do this. Now the mm-hmm. abandonment case took years. I mean years. Mm-hmm. Um. Because it went all the way up to the, um, you know, to the Ninth Circuit, and then they were petitioning for cert from the Supreme Court and that kind of thing. Um, but you know, there are several antitrust cases, and you know, you don't want to get me to get into cartels versus monopolies and monopsonies, or if you do, find me on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> find you know, her on maybe Twitter, I'll anyways. Do a podcast but... that <laughs> yeah, how about we have a separate episode that talks about that? I'm how interested in cartels. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but with all the jokes aside, the point is that the second that college athletes are recognized as the de facto employees that they are, the balance of power shifts immediately, hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've made reference to the University of Missouri, where that football team decided they weren't going to play a game yeah. because the university was not addressing issues of racism on that campus. And they yep. got an entire administrator fired in five calendar days because they said they were not going to show up yep. on the field. I, I mean, these kids, they have this power. 
Yeah. In theory. And if they, yeah, as soon and as, if they're as soon given as they are a right to exercise that, then yep. it's, yeah, this, this, um, this reminds me of the Northwestern case in 2014, mm-hmm. they were trying to unionize and it was something very, very similar, right? Um, it was, and there's a couple of variables here that are, you know, have sort of underpinned the entire thing. Um, one was a you know very strange decision made that that some people saw was kind of a political leaning um, with regards to an opinion that was done by one of the one of the employees there. But the other thing is that Northwestern is a private school, right? So there was always going to be this discussion about whether or not I do remember that the NLRB had said, which is the National Labor Relations Board, mm-hmm. even if they had said that this applied to Northwestern, you know, it all wasn't going to be a sweeping, be like, right? No, right. That's not a, um, so the, the general, the general gist is that, you know, they tried, the players tried to state that they could, that they could form a union based on the fact that they were employers or employees, mm-hmm. uh, unsurprisingly, Northwestern refused to recognize them as employees. So they had a hearing, uh, before the regional national labor relations board mm-hmm. in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they talked about what were specific, uh, uh, precedents for who uh, who is an employee. You know, they use the the definition that an individual who performs services for another under the control of another for compensation and payment, you know, that's that's an employee under the, the Labor Relations Act. Mm-hmm. And the NLRB had had cases like this similarly. Hmm. Um, in 2004, it ruled that a Brown University graduate, that the teaching assistants, the, the GA teaching assistants, mm-hmm. were not employees because they were primarily students. Oh, okay. So th- that was that was one of their, yeah, they were graduate teaching assistants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had decided that in 04. And again, remember, this, the Northwestern players were backed by the steelworkers. Yes. And so, you know, they, they held very firm that there was no reason that players could not be both students and employees. Hmm. Um, and even one of the, the regional director um, and I, I pulled this quote because uh, you know how I feel about the student athlete moniker um, <laughs> and, and where that came from. But he uh, said uh, the players spend 50 to 60 hours per week on their football duties during a one month training camp prior to the start of the academic year and an additional 40 to 50 hours per week on those duties during the three or four month football season. Not only is this more hours than many undisputed full-time employees work at their jobs, it is also more hours than the players spend on their studies. Touche, sir. Touche. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, also, he also noted that the uh, Northwestern football reported $235 million revenue from 2003 to 2012. Was... uh, that, that was worth pointing out. Um, well, and, and so North- it makes me think yeah. about like work study situations. Like there's plenty of examples across every campus in the U.S. where someone is a student and also works on campus, is also an yeah. employee of the university. Like I don't, I, th- th- that's not a mind bender to say no. that someone could be a student and an employee. No, it's absolutely not a mind that they're right. you're, you're entirely right. <laughs> like, I, I don't know why we have to argue that. that. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, you could work at the diner on campus, the bookstore, the, I mean, any anything on campus, which most- oh, I was a student athletic trainer. I got yeah. paid. Yeah, as did I. Right. Well, I mean, ours was more in the form of scholarship. Um, 
Oh, no, mine was more in the form of a W-2. Oh, wow. See, so, I mean, perfect example, even within the athletics department. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's... um. It it doesn't require. That's why when some people go, well, it's just too hard. And I said, well, is it really? Right. Is it is it really too mm-hmm. hard? And why are we why are we holding college athletes to uh, not even a standard? Why are we restricting them in a way that we don't restrict anybody else? No other student demographic on campus is told they can't have another job. They can't have a free meal. They can't sell their own shoes. They can't sign an autograph. They can't take the classes that they want. No other demographic on campus is told they cannot do that except college athletes. And the college athletes are the ones that are, for the purposes of revenue sports, making money hand over fist for everyone except themselves. Yes. And the argument they'll say is, oh, but they're on scholarship. But to your point, so none of the other kids, yeah, none of the other kids, scholarship or not, are restricted in any of those ways. So that yeah. kind of nullifies that argument. You know, it it does. You know, so basically, what you're saying currently, athletes are limited uh, and for the most part, all the way blocked in their ability to collectively bargain or receive pay for the likeness yeah. or name as the NCAA holds that the collegiate level of sports is considered amateurism. And it it makes me think about, I just was reading a story recently where there was a kicker down, I think it's somewhere in Florida, who had gotten really popular on YouTube, his own channel doing something completely unrelated to football. And he started receiving a decent amount of compensation from YouTube He had grown it all on his own, not on the backs of being a kicker for this university. And the NCAA told him he could no longer have that YouTube channel. He couldn't be a kicker and also receive compensation for his likeness on YouTube, which is just, (laughs) oh, it's just my, oh man. So Anyways, it seems that, you know, for, for <laughs> the you NCAA. you know what keeps me up. <laughs> right? This is what I lose sleep on. Over there. Um, so, so due to this amateurism that the NCAA deems that college athletes are, the NCAA kind of has this intricate network of regulations, it sounds like, sort of like intended to keep what they're calling an even playing field. And... It's possible that even if state law allowed college athletes in Maryland to collectively bargain, they still could be subject to NCAA bylaws in order to maintain eligibility. But I mean, I think that even with that, you know, these are kind of like the first steps that are needed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that's right. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like you know, the schools have been given a chance to make these changes and, you know, they don't want to kill the fatted calf, if you will. You know, they don't, the profits that they don't want to share with the athletes that are doing the actual work. So, um, you know, as Jonathan Allen, the, the student body president at Maryland had said, we saw how these governing bodies can prioritize profits over the interests of college athletes and how the interests of college athletes don't always align with the financial and political interests of the institutions. I think that kind of summarizes and and is the crux of the entire argument around why unionization hasn't happened is because there is that difference in 
uh, alignments of, of desires for what each party wants, um, but also, as we know, would take a massive amount of profits out of the NCAA. And so uh -huh. um, another state to consider and to look at, uh, in North Carolina, they actually passed a bill in 2017 that established a legislative commission on the fair treatment of college student athletes. And they were charged with exploring several issues, including healthcare and compensation. So that body is expected to issue a report shortly, as of the time of recording, um, that calls for the creation of a, quote, protected commission for athletes, but it does stop short of demanding compensation or collective bargaining rights, according to a draft of the report that was reviewed by the Washington Post. So it does sound like some states, some some entities, some people are doing something, but generally speaking, you know, we're not we're not going to get to where we might think we are. Um, you know, with always the exception of California, <laughs> hey. um, who has proposed a bill that will that, that would allow college athletes the right to sell their name, likeness, and image. Though again. Even if the state passed it, I don't know what that would mean for those athletes in how it pertains to their NCAA eligibility. Uh, but if anybody could do it, California can, right? <laughs> well, the let me tell you, Nancy Skinner is doing yeoman's work out there, mm. uh, their state representative. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the UC systems, to say that the UC schools are pushing back on this would be a gross understatement. Yeah. They are, the, the UCs and the Cal States are really pushing back on it hard. But at the same time, you know, the NCAA needs California. True, true. I think, you know, you know, they're one of the ones that could afford to do this, which is what we see a lot. You know, the, this may be an unpopular opinion amongst our listeners, but the U.S. needs California uh, mm -hmm. from a revenue perspective and even from an agriculture perspective. Um, and so I think oftentimes they do have that leverage to push back on national or federal uh, laws or bills or whatever it is that's passed. A lot of times we see California, not just because they're more liberal, but I think because they have that power to kind of say, well, we're not going to do it this way. And, you know, everybody has to examine that because they bring so much into the the larger uh, United States. Well, and I mean, what is it? The, I think the California economy is the fifth largest economy in the world. Correct. Like yes. Yes. Like it's, you know, it's no joke. Yeah. But to even not really flip that coin, but just to show that it's not just, you know, West Coast, best Coast hippies or mm -hmm. whatever the, you know, pejorative allegations would be. There's a Republican in North Carolina, a mm -hmm. Tea Party Republican who I have literally never agreed with anything in my life on. Yeah. Who is doing the same kind of thing in North Carolina. And so right. is North Carolina that valuable as a large state? Not particularly. Sure. Does the NCAA want to play college basketball without Duke and UNC? Mm. Yep. I would suggest they're not that thrilled about that idea. Right, right. So the California obviously packs a huge punch for that. Yeah. But there are it's it's interesting to see in the last 18 months the bipartisan shift 
that has moved towards treatment of college athletes. It's been very interesting for somebody who works on the front lines like I do to see people who I would have guessed one million people before I got to their name as somebody who would join this fight. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we're we're welcome to the Mark Walker of North Carolina. We're going to celebrate the fact that you may be late, but you showed up and you are welcome at this party. Right. You are welcome at this party because you are on the right side of this. Right. And I think one of the one of the other interesting things that you've expressed interest in yeah. is um the idea that the uh service academies, yeah. the military academies, right. cadets at military academies get paid. Right. They get paid a certain amount of money that increases over the years. I was mm-hmm. just speaking with my father about this last week. You know, about what the how you know, they, they essentially you get a certain amount of payroll, you're, yeah. you're paid a certain amount each month, and then they deduct things for things like haircuts and, and such not, or at least they did back sure. in the day. I assume it's relatively the same. And then whatever you still have in your account, they just write you a check when you graduate, whatever you haven't spent. Yeah. So, to be and, clear for the listeners, what we're talking about is college athletes, and not just college athletes, but every single student body member on campus with what we're referring to as um, like the service, uh, the service academies, which is yeah, so Army, the Navy, Army. Yep. Yep, the Air, Air Force, Force Academy, the yep. Coast Guard Academy. Yeah, yep. everything like that. Right. Um, and they get, I mean, it's codified in federal law. It is 37 U.S. Code Section 203 mm. that says what that amount is. And, you know, the monthly rate equal to 35% of the base pay of a commission officer and they pay grade zero to one with, I mean, it is in federal law. That's crazy. That these people and our tax dollars are paying these kids. Yep. And I'm not making a statement one way or the other about whether our tax dollars should be doing it. But right. You're no, no, no. I understand. For all the people that claim that money is going to destroy the system. Yeah. Or that know, nobody's doing it. Or how would we do it? Or there's no model yeah. out there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. How on earth would this happen? It would happen exactly the way that it already happened. Right. And again, to be clear, every single student body member on these campuses get paid in addition to the football player, in addition to all of the athletes that are on campus. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the ones that get those precious sweatshirts or whatever, we're supposed to be thrilled that they get. (laughs) Thank goodness for the fact that they get Nike socks or Right. Because that keeps food on the table. (laughs) Clearly. So Um, that's just something that I thought was a, was a good no, absolutely. I think I think it's a it's a great uh, example, and um, you know, I think that there's probably plenty of examples out there. It's just that they choose not to look at them, or they choose not yeah. to find. You know, solutions can be found where they want to be found. It's not about you know this model doesn't exist. It, it, I think that we've already nullified that argument. Correct. I'm interested in knowing. So, how are athletic trainers going to be affected, or how could they be affected? by this idea of the players potentially unionizing or the idea of unions and how it relates to student athletes, because it would also be interesting to know how it could relate to athletic trainers unionizing, but that's a different topic. <laughs> well, it, it is, but it isn't. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously the college athletes as the employees, uh, the de facto employees mm-hmm. um, would be, you know, the, they're the subject of the unionization, mm-hmm. but one could make an argument that they are athletic department employees. Right. And as such, your sports information department, yeah. your video department 
your athletic training department, yep. your entire sports medicine department, uh, your co- equipment managers. Mm, your, well, we can you all know, collectively bargain together. Yeah, facilities people, I think, and I don't know this, off, my, my thinking would be that the facilities people probably would fall under uh, general university employees. And some sure. of those would be, you know, eligible for unionization, I'm sure. And others, others would not. Mm-hmm. But um, so it could well, you know, be from a from a payment standpoint. Right. I mean, that would that would obviously be that would obviously be fantastic. Right. Um, you know, there are as far as, you know, if one of the legislation for name, image and likeness, that's not really going to affect the athletic trainers unless right. you're a really famous athletic trainer and then you can get money for your autograph. But guess <laughs> what? You already can because you're not restricted. Touché. So <laughs> it won't really cause a, a difference there. But one of the things that you should keep an eye on is um, there's some legislation uh, out of um, Florida. Representative Lawson, um, and I believe it's co-sponsored by Representative Cardenas, Um, and they're looking at trying to address access to lifetime health care for injuries sustained while playing college sport. Hmm. So that's that's definitely something uh, for athletic trainers to keep in mind. Um, The other thing that is creating a new pot of money that is causing everyone to freak out Mm -hmm. um, is the sports betting. Oh, yeah. And I think this is actually, it, it may be worth a, you know, maybe even another little bonus episode or something right, like that. Right, probably. Um, one of the biggest areas that athletic trainers should keep an eye on for it is mm-hmm. this expanded world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a little over a year since PASPA was overturned. And uh, I can tell you, I was just three weeks ago as of time of recording mm-hmm. um, at the Sports Lawyers Association meeting. And I can tell you unequivocally that the NCAA is not in the least bit prepared to deal mm-hmm. with what is coming down the line. Interesting. Not the least bit prepared. If okay. they If they're honest with themselves... I think they know they cannot control this at all. Okay. Um, this is the same organization that penalized a kid for selling his shoes. Right. And right. that is currently using the FBI and my tax dollars to enforce their facade of amateurism <laughs> against uh, assistant coaches and yeah. uh, for doing something that in any other uh, industry would be called would would be considered a commission or a finder's fee. Yeah. But somehow it is you know destroying the fabric fabric of of society as we know it. <laughs> but the thing is, if they keep pressing this idea that kids cannot make money off their own work, then there is a real and a very legitimate concern that the dark side of sports betting will reach these kids. Right. Right. Like yeah. they're they're cutting off their nose to spite everyone's face yes they're like yeah. we don't want co- we don't want betting in sports we're worried about integrity and da 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 we're gonna make sure that our kids are broken hungry yeah. and then act really surprised <laughs> when somebody comes up and tries to get them to throw a game I mean it's cynical oh but that's my exactly gosh. what no, they're it's, doing and they don't understand yeah. how fascinatingly stupid that idea is right um I mean I was approached when I worked for the football team mm. I was approached by people who wanted information on some of my athletes before the NFL draft. Right, right. And that is, it it, it is much more prevalent now, and it will be even more prevalent as the betting marketplace expands. Yeah, that's a really good point to make for athletic trainers. Now, college athletic trainers specifically will not be able to control something. Right. Um, Other athletes giving information on what they've seen Uh in the athletic training room. Uh I mean, that's a reality. Classmates, knowing that a kid came into class with a brace on, Mm -hmm. you know, that's, you can't, you can't stop that. Right. But what it means is that athletic trainers and the people that are around the athletic training room will need to step up their game to keep athlete health info private. 
No doubt. And I, and I also think that there's just going to be a greater amount of pressure in relation to doing things secretively and, you know, not already it's kind of like us against them. When you talk about, you know, your, your athletes, your coaches against, or I should say versus, you know, media or whatever it is. But mm -hmm. if what you're describing comes to fruition, it's now like every man for himself. And so you lose that idea of being able to, you know, do a treatment in the wide open athletic training room mm -hmm. or the facility thinking, you know, that somebody could be watching or like, I, I can't even imagine the environment that that could potentially create when, I mean, that's a very slippery slope that we could yeah. go down with that idea. Well, and it, it goes back to what we keep saying about athletic trainers getting involved in the higher level administration decision. Oh, yeah. Yep. Because I can tell you this, there will be some kind of requirement coming down the road about standardized injury reports, mm. like you see in professional sports. That makes also sense. Also collectively bargained for. Right. But these conferences and these schools have already, the Big 12 is already starting to talk about what kind of injury report and what kind of injury status is going to have to be released now that sports betting is legal. And mm -hmm. that is going to happen to the athletic trainers, whether you like it or not. Totally. It's coming. Yep. And if you are not at the table for that discussion... I mean, what, what do they say? If you're not at the table, you're the dinner. No, oh, that's Something really like that. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're, if you're not at the table, they are making these decisions. Yeah. You're not being there is not going to stop them from making this decision. Mm -hmm. And so don't just abdicate that decision-making to administrators that have no idea what is involved in sports medicine. Right. Offer to be part of that discussion on the front end. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you are someone, if you're a head athletic trainer, an assistant athletic trainer at any university, walk into whoever your athletic director is that oversees your thing, make an appointment and talk to them about what this looks like. Mm -hmm. Offer to be part of that on the front end mm -hmm. because yeah. that it, it's coming. I'm not even going to play. It is wow. coming. You're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. It and makes so much if, sense. And if you're not trying to get in there and get your opinion, you don't get to complain about it. I mean, Touché. still can. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to laugh in your face if you didn't try and take a stand. I'm really not going to. No, no, no. It, I get, no, it, I get it. It needs yeah. to be taken mm -hmm. very seriously because that ship has sailed, the horse has left the barn, and every other metaphor that you can come up with. Right, right. So all that to be said with mm -hmm. everything that we've talked about, the idea that college athletes can't unionize means they have no say in all of these things. Mm -hmm. The college athletes don't have any say right now in the injury reports we just mm -hmm. talked about. Right, instance. right. So allowing union-style representation doesn't mean that athletes automatically, you know, get salaries and tax forms and retirement plans sure. and instantly, you know, 1.2 children and a picket fence. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. <laughs> but what I hope that some of these little, you know, tidbits that we've tried to connect, what I hope is that if there are folks that thought that unions shouldn't apply to college athletes, mm -hmm. I hope they see how many aspects of college sports are actually the kind of things that the athletes doing the work should have that say in. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, I've learned so much just in talking to you about this. Everything from understanding kind of the point of the union to even the collective bargaining, I really just assumed that collective bargaining was all about compensation and salaries, it makes total sense that it would include healthcare and retirement. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there's, 
less and less doubt happening around this idea that they should have a say or shouldn't have a say. Um, the more examples that we see, it makes it harder to agree with the argument that they shouldn't. Um, yeah. And it, it's not even about examples. It sounds like, you know, from the very beginning, maybe that shouldn't have even been the case, but we're at where we're at. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, this has been super informative. I, I definitely think that the athletic trainers, our listeners will be able to speak more intelligently about this, probably even have questions of their own, hopefully do their own research, continue to pay attention to this topic, whether it comes to fruition or not. I think it's really cool to be able to speak to our student athletes about these kinds of things, hear them out. Uh, But regarding the sports betting, I think that that is really something that's going to be out in the forefront very quickly here. So uh, I imagine that, you know, we will start seeing more information about that coming through. So thank you so much for sharing all this information. I, I love doing these bonus episodes because, you know, we're we're not held to the restrictions of uh, kind of the BOC CEU content. And I feel like we're able to understand things in a way that uh, is just different. So thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it. It's always, it's always fun to talk to somebody who's still practicing full time because mm. they're you know, if you're, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So I love having smart friends and colleagues <laughs> who, uh, who make me think about things differently. So thank you. Absolutely. 